Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar series, Caring for Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live in the fall of 2015. This webinar series is presented by the Lewin Group in collaboration with Community Catalyst and the American Geriatric Society and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care to Medicare Medicaid enrollees, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com. In this podcast, Dr. Eric Coleman, Professor of Medicine and Head of the Division of Healthcare Policy and Research at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, will explore the care transitions intervention at Baylor Scott and White Health. Uh, so we're going to discuss an evidence-based model, uh, the care transitions intervention that's developed here in the program that I run in Colorado. Um, <clears throat> one of the, uh, I think, universal truths of this model is that its simplicity is both its uh, biggest asset and its biggest liability. Uh, from a distance, people say, oh, yeah, 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 that's what we do. Oh, wait, 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 there's some home visits and phone calls um, after the hospital. Right, that's what we do. Um, what I'm hoping to do in our time together is to sort of call out what makes this unique um, and how um, employing this model uh, in the context of individuals with dementia and their family caregivers uh, is something for which we have been uh, expanding upon and, and developing further evidence. Um, so as it stands, um, this model is unique from the standpoint that it is <clears throat> focused on building self-care skills using something that we refer to as coaching. Coaching is a term that's uh, been widely used since then, and I'll make some distinctions about what we're after when we talk about coaching. But this is designed to encourage and support both older patients and their family members assert a more active role in their care transitions. When we think about uh, the experience of moving across care settings, uh, uh, certainly once people return to their home or to the community, um, we realize that there's 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week, which adds up quickly to 168 hours. And of those 168 hours, the vast majority, probably 160 or more, uh, these individuals are on their own. There's no health professionals running around. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is rather than just come in and fix problems in the moment, we're really looking at ways of building the capacity of the individual and their family uh, to be able to respond to common transition problems themselves. This slide, uh, which I sort of reminds me of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, gives us a, uh, a sense of just how many care settings we're talking about. Um, um, it's very easy to see uh, that individuals need uh, additional skills to be able to, to navigate. We sometimes think about people going home and now they need to manage their chronic illness like diabetes or heart failure, but also by default, most of them become care coordinators. Next slide. Uh, so the care transitions intervention uh, has gone through multiple rigorous randomized controlled trials. We've been trying to diverse patient populations. Um, and ultimately, uh, we're able to demonstrate reductions in 30-day 
readmissions, but also because this is designed to be a model that, that, that improves capacity for self-care, that these efforts are sustained. Uh, that is to say that uh, if you, sort of using the proverb, teach someone to fish, that those benefits uh, occur both today as well as downstream. And so our evidence suggests that, that not only can you reduce 30-day readmissions, which is where the mark is currently, but also uh, out as far as uh, six months. Um, but this whole focus on skill transfer, coaching equals skill transfer. Uh, in order to do this, uh, there are sort of two important caveats uh, to coaching. One is that the individual who's uh, functioning in the role of a coach needs to have the skills in the first place. Uh, and the majority of our coaches are nurses, social workers, occupational therapists. Uh, but secondly, there needs to be some mechanism to determine if those skills uh, have been imparted. There needs to be metrics and tools, and, and all that is available as part of this intervention. So we're trying to impart skills and confidence. <laughs> Next slide. So this individual called a transitions coach uh, is not there to come in and fix problems, uh, but rather in keeping with the proverb to, to teach people to fish. The coach does not provide skilled services, uh, but rather is there to, to really build the skills and the capacity of the individual and their family caregiver towards self-management. Now, we often uh, hear people refer to this model as the four pillars model, and, and although there are four pillars embedded in this model, um, it, it's a little bit of a misleading to say this is the four pillars model because what ends up happening is it sort of by default becomes sort of a checklist. And, and I just want to emphasize that this is really not about a checklist. Uh, I'll say more about that in a minute. But, but the, not to disregard the four pillars, the four pillars are uh, what came out of some qualitative work we did earlier with individuals and their families about what are the areas that you feel you would like to be more confident in. And this is uh, keeping a personal health record. I'll elaborate that in a moment. Medication review, I'll say more about that. Red flags and follow-up. So I will talk about the four pillars. They are part of the model, but really the essence of the model is about skill transfer. Um, next slide, please. All right, let's keep it right there for a minute. The other distinguishing, oops, can we go back one, please? Sorry, I was waiting for that little graphic to come in. Excellent. The other, I think, distinguishing factor of the model has to do with the goal. There certainly are, in a lot of corridors in healthcare now, we're talking about goals. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes, however, the goals are sort of determined or, or predetermined. Um, you have diabetes, so your goal is to reduce your hemoglobin A1C blood test. In the care transitions intervention, the goal is an open-ended question. In fact, we don't even say health goal. We say personal goal. Uh, we've recently completed some work uh, with patients and families and found that 70% of people who just came out of the hospital with a chronic illness exacerbation did not have a goal related to their health. Uh, in other words, people have goals related to quality, quality of life, to their relationships, to their avocations. Um, and these goals are remarkably powerful because they give uh, the coach and others who are involved in this person's care a sense of what's important, a sense of what motivates them, uh, and, and that most of us do not define ourselves by our chronic illnesses. Next slide, please. Personal health record is, is one of those four pillars that's not universally used. Um, there certainly are instances where there because of language or literacy or otherwise that this may or may not be applicable, but in most cases 
the, the, the real thrust of the personal health records is to reinforce the individual and their family asserting a more active role in their care. And this becomes sort of a very tangible tool for how this gets done. The goal is prominently featured in the personal health record. I'll talk a little bit about medication reconciliation from the patient standpoint, and, we'll talk, and that, of course, becomes part of this record, as well as the warning signs or red flags and uh, information on how to, uh, who the family caregivers are and how to reach them. Next slide, please. talk about medications. Uh, and to my watch, it's been over 10 years since we've had mandated medication reconciliation in our facilities. Uh, and yet, surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, 10 years later, we've actually made relatively little progress on reducing the number of errors or discrepancies that occur by the time these individuals get home. Uh, so what's going on here? We're putting a lot of effort into this. These are smart people. They're nurses and social workers and physicians trying to reconcile meds before the patient leaves, and yet the patient gets home, and it's like a whole other world. Now, there are all those medications that were still exactly where they were when the individual got whisked away to go to the hospital or the emergency department. Uh, so what we do through the care transitions intervention is to start off with, we avoid the tendency to walk into the patient's home, point to a list of medicines that were printed from the electronic health record, and ask, are these the medicines you are taking? because the answer is always yes. <laughs> but rather, we walk in with no such list in hand, and we ask an open-ended question. I'd like to know what medicines you take, how you take them. By the way, no need to say anything to try to please me. Once that step occurs, and the patient begins to trust the coach, the coach is not there to judge them, the coach is not there to wave their finger at them and say, how come you're not doing this or that, but just let's get out the list of what you're taking. Now there's an opportunity for the coach and patient to look at that list that the hospital thinks they should take and go through and identify where those discrepancies are. Uh, nurses, social workers, occupational therapists can all do this. You don't have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of medications. In fact, you're really just cross-referencing as we go. And then once those discrepancies are identified, you need a plan for what's going to happen, how are those going to be communicated. And so part of the coaching is also to give individuals the language uh, and also the understanding that, that, uh, of where they can reach out to you to get some clarity on their medications. Next slide, please. Uh, red flags, uh, this is fairly self-evident. Uh, what are the things you need to watch for? Uh, but perhaps even more importantly, we don't spend as much time on talking about what do you do. And what do you do differently when it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday versus 2 a.m. on a Sunday? Uh, and how would you go about seeking care under that circumstances? Next slide, please. Uh, Follow-up appointment. One of the things we learned in our qualitative work is that a, a lot of times patients are a little bit bewildered about why they need a follow-up appointment. Gee, I was just in that hospital. There are nurses and doctors and technicians and therapists crawling all over me. Why do I need to go to an appointment? Um, so interestingly, when we sort of look at why people do appointments, um, we certainly look at important things like transportation and co-pays, but another is that the individual sort of feels like I've been over-treated or at least treated enough for the time being. Um, so part of what our coaches do is, is reinforce the value of these appointments, but from their standpoint, what, what are they going to get out of the appointment? Because a lot of these folks have been down this road before, and their follow-up appointment just becomes 
primary care or a specialist asking them, confirming here's what happened in the hospital, and the patients and families don't see a lot of value. So we try to add the, the patient, uh, encourage them to help establish the agenda so there is value. Next slide, please. Um, here's a case study that Alan put together, a 63-year-old woman who was hospitalized for sepsis. She was basically brought in overnight, uh, and we're going to walk through this together. Her home visit, phone call number one, phone call number two. Um, what you'll notice on all these encounters between the coach and the patient and the coach and the family is that the first agenda item is always the goal. This is not something that we ask and then note and then put away somewhere, uh, filed away, that this is always top of mind and this is the main thrust of all the encounters. The goal really drives all subsequent uh, agenda. Uh, in this case, in the home, the personal health record was introduced. As they went through that exercise of the medication I mentioned, they identified 11 medication discrepancies, which um, unfortunately is not uncommon. Um, also learned that the patient was struggling getting an appointment the time they needed to, uh, and before the visit was over, they went over red flags and what to do if those red flags occur. For the phone call, again, the goal and the progress along the goal was uh, was job number one, uh, and then they had an opportunity to go over how that follow-up appointment went, were there any medications changed, um, and then uh, what communication seemed to go well, what didn't go so well and where needed to practice, rehearse, role play that. And on the follow-up phone call, again, the goal is top of the list. Um, and here on this call, the patient was beginning to develop some of those red flags, and so there was an opportunity uh, to not only make sure the individual was getting the, the attention that they needed sort of in the moment, but also prepare them for a future time when maybe the coach didn't just happen to call. The individual would know what to do. Next slide, please. Uh, so these slides sort of reiterate what we just talked about, but also show you what's happening in between. So after the home visit, there was a follow-up visit. Follow-up visit, uh, uh, there was uh, the recognition that the patient was told to stop medication in the hospital uh, that may or may not have been uh, communicated to the primary care, and so that this uh, patient's level of preparation and their personal health record helps positively influence their course of treatment. Next slide, please. Similarly, between the phone call, um, there was an opportunity uh, to reinforce uh, what the patient took away from that visit. Again, what went well, what didn't go so well, uh, but also the fact that in many cases, uh, when we think something has been addressed or dealt with, it may or may not necessarily be the final chapter. And so in this case, the urinary tract symptoms persisted, and there was an opportunity uh, to coach the patient through this. Next slide, please. Um, in my remaining minutes, I want to uh, share with you that um, our initial work supported by the John A. Hartford Foundation, our subsequent work supported by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, where we really wanted to more deliberately uh, involve family caregivers. From the very beginning, we've included family caregivers, but we also realized that there are some uh, customization or tailoring that we need when the patient is either unable to be coached or prefers not to be coached and would defer that to a family caregiver. Um, <clears throat> we uh, are pleased to collaborate with Gary Epstein-Laveau, who did a study in Rhode Island where the care transition intervention was rolled out, where he noted that when a family member was present, 
whether or not that was the primary target for the coaching or not, that the acceptance rate went up. Next slide, please. When we uh, did a series of focus groups that included family members of individuals with dementia, we learned a lot about what their needs are, and I think some of this echoes what we heard from Karen around readiness and, and around their identity and involvement. And this helped us um, really, I think, more customize the model for family caregivers. Um, <clears throat> for example, uh, having the family caregiver's goal also be part of the agenda. Um, and uh, helping the family member feel more confident and prepared for what's coming up, being able to anticipate next steps. Um, we've published this work and the references at the bottom, but we were able to demonstrate that when you involve family caregivers in this way, not only do you see greater activation, quite remarkable increases in activation around common uh, care transition uh, um, tasks, but also um, identification and reconciliation of medication problems, a rise in, in care transition measure scores that's now part of HCAPS and value-based purchasing and also goal attainment for the patient as well as for the family. Next slide. Uh, we invite you to come visit our website, caretransitions.org, where you can learn all sorts of additional uh, information about the care transitions intervention, watch a, a coach in action, download some of our tools, and learn about training and technical assistance. For more information about this webinar series and other resources, including videos and podcasts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com and follow us on Twitter at integrate underscore care.